Welcome to today's program. My name is Glenn Deason, and with me is my colleague uh, Alexander McCurris of the Duran. And the guest today is Chas Freeman, who is a retired uh, U.S. diplomat. Uh, so Ambassador Freeman, he served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense. Uh, he's had many important roles, uh, one of them uh, in designing the European post-Cold War security system uh, centered, around, centered around NATO. He worked, uh, if I'm not mistaken, also for uh, the Nixon administration, uh, assisting in uh, re-establishing or developing relations with China. And uh, also, uh, Ambassador Freeman served as the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, which is also yeah, a key U.S. partnership in the Middle East. So this is a very unique background in terms of organizing Europe, relations with Russia, China, Saudi Arabia. So again, it's a real great honor and a pleasure to have him on. So welcome, uh, Chas Freeman. I'm sorry about that. I will try to silence that. Um, thank you. <laughs> uh, you didn't mention that I actually started out uh, with a degree in Latin American studies and um, never used my Spanish except in negotiating with Fidel Castro uh, to persuade him to leave Angola if we could get the South Africans to leave, leave Namibia, which to everyone's astonishment, we did. Um, uh, so I apologize for the interruption. Um, uh, I'm not sure what that was, but... Uh, no, <laughs> no worries at all. Uh, so, well, the main theme today uh, is really to discuss well, the changing world order, as all of these things tie, tie together around this. Uh, as we know, the post-Cold War order was to a large extent organized around uh, U.S. global primacy, which appears to have come to an end, if not coming to an end. So again, you have some excellent insights here, uh, as we're now experiencing this implosion of the pan-European security architecture with this war in Ukraine. Also, unfortunately, the uh, freefall in U.S.-China relations, risking, uh, hopefully not, but uh, risking a possible military conflict. And we also see the uh, reorganization of the Middle East, but also the fra fragmentation of U.S.-Saudi relations, which, uh, well, hopefully you can inform us what kind of repercussions there will be. But uh, I thought we could start with the most uh, pressing issue, which is uh, yeah, well, what's happening in Europe, uh, obviously with this war now in Ukraine. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, uh, I guess maybe a bit wide question, but uh, yeah, how did we end up with this war and uh, how has the United States responded to it? And lastly, where is the war going? Uh, sorry for the huge question, but... Uh, huge question. Um, uh, in 1993, when I was Assistant Secretary of Defense, I synthesized a um, uh, uh, a uh, program called the Partnership for Peace. I was the original architect of that. It was both a path to NATO membership uh, for the newly independent countries of Eastern Europe um, and, a, um, uh, and, a, and a potential cooperative versus collective security institution. Uh, there was a link to Russia uh, involved in it in the uh, NATO-Russia Council. Uh, and uh, Russia was, in fact, invited to join it. Um, the origin of this was uh, interesting. Um, uh, people had a view of what Europe should be, but the only organization 
that embraced Europe at that time was the OSCE. And the OSCE, of course, included the former Soviet republics of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and whatnot, which by no stretch of the imagination were European. So the idea was we shall let Europeans define themselves. Uh, if uh, people in, uh, in uh, let's say, Slovakia um, wish to demonstrate that they are European, they have to do two things. First, they have to conform to Western European uh, standards for the parliamentary supervision of the defense budget and a civilian minister of defense. Uh, in other words, conform to the political military culture that defines Western Europe and NATO. And second, they had to learn the 3000 standardization agreements or STANAGs, uh, which enable uh, people from different nationalities speaking different languages to cooperate in military operations. Um, military operations in support of peacekeeping or disaster relief are not fundamentally different from those involved in warfare. So uh, that was the idea. Uh, that fell afoul of two things. Uh, domestic American electoral politics with uh, ethnic groups insisting on uh, the immediate admission of their favorite country, their, home, their ancestral homeland to NATO without regard to their conditions. Uh, and, uh, and second, uh, uh, revanchism, in fact, uh, a kind of uh, triumphalism on the part of neoconservatives in the United States and their fellow travelers in Europe, mm -hmm. um, which altered the plan. With respect to Ukraine, the idea originally was, uh, well, there were two uncertainties. One was, would the Baltics join NATO? And the answer there that we had when we came up with this idea was, if Russia does not object, yes. If it is acceptable to Russia, yes. And in fact, it did prove acceptable to Russia. Uh, with Ukraine, we had a different calculation. We imagined Ukraine would wish to learn the Stanags to become militarily interoperable with NATO, but would not seek to join NATO because that would be a strategic provocation that would bring in a Russian intervention. So we understood, this is 1993, this is 30 years ago, we understood very well um, what would happen if, if Ukraine were admitted uh, to NATO, especially if it failed to meet any of the criteria for that. Um, what happened, how we got to this mess is a push from our side, that is NATO, the United States, uh, to bring in every country that had uh, become independent of the former Soviet empire, in Europe, Georgia first, then Ukraine, uh, regardless of what of their conditions. And this brings me to the point that um, uh, this began with a Russian effort passing forces on Ukraine's border and demanding negotiations on European security architecture, the very issue that I've just discussed. Uh, I didn't consider that unreasonable at all. I also thought uh, that if we failed to address the Russian negotiation proposal, uh, they would, in fact, take some sort of military action. What it was, I did not know. In the event, um, after they were stiff-armed, 
they did act. Uh, and I think they acted in a way which uh, may prove tragic for themselves. Um, I don't. I think that decision to invade Ukraine, mm -hmm. which appears to me to have been a last-minute decision, no prior briefing of generals, no lineup of logistics, no briefing of troops, no effort to address the nature of the mission to send the troops over the border in three different columns. Um, this seems to me to have been the greatest strategic blunder by a Russian government since their decision to go to war with Japan um, in 1904, which had ultimate tragic consequences for the Tsar and his regime. Uh, so how did we get here? We got here through a series of blunders, misjudgments, uh, all, none of which should have happened. There should have been talks with the Russians. If you sit down at the table to talk to someone, as I know from my diplomatic experience, that you are not necessarily there to agree with them or to accept what they're proposing. But at least you listen uh, and you try to understand their position. You exercise a bit of empathy um, and you try to figure out how you can square the differences between you in a way that um, leaves both sides better off than they were uh, before. We did none of that. And I have to say, in criticizing my own country's diplomatic style at the moment, it does not appear that we know how to do that. Uh, I look at the disastrous encounter between Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan uh, in Anchorage with the Chinese at the outset of the, administer the Biden administration. I look at the uh, botched effort to uh, restore restraints on Iranian nuclear programs. I look at the absence of dialogue with North Korea, which has, where maximum pressure policy has produced an ICBM with a nuclear warhead capable of striking our homeland, uh, the American homeland. So uh, I'm not impressed by uh, how we got to this point, uh, but, I do say, and I apologize for going on so long, uh, but I do say um, my sense is that a combination of factors, war fatigue, um, the, uh, the increasing evidence that sanctions are counterproductive rather than productive in terms of altering the shape of the world to our advantage, um, and uh, uh, and the revelation that uh, we are living in a positive ocean of war propaganda with very little access to facts are all combining to increase interest in finding a way to end this war. Mm -hmm. I see various proposals for peace coming out, most of them pretty unrealistic, um, but I suppose we should talk about that. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, Ambassador, that what you are saying is a, a, a collapse of diplomacy and the need for a return to one, because there hasn't been much in the way of diplomacy for some time. But now, perhaps the situation on the ground in Ukraine and the situation with the sanctions might finally persuade people that diplomacy, which I think has almost been treated as something something akin to appeasement, that if you are talking to the other side, 
doing what you said, sowing some kind of empathy towards them. You are you are appeasing evil in some fashion. I mean, that's the kind of rhetoric that I personally am encountering all the time when I say, you know, we need we need to some look for some kind of way out, some kind of interactions. People always bring up this appeasement issue, but that's what we need to get through to. And um, I mean, you've spoken with the Russians, you've had dealings with the Russians, you've spoken with Ukrainians, you've spoken with all of these people. And I think that this rhetoric of evil, of black and white and all of those things that we managed to trap ourselves into has done an enormous amount of harm. But it is going to be very, very difficult to get some of our electorates now, now that they've been hearing all of this for so long, to suddenly change uh, uh, their mood and to turn around and say, well, perhaps we, you know, you're telling us one day we can't talk to Putin, he's evil. Why are we therefore talking to him now? It's going to be very difficult to do that without suffering, experiencing some degree of disorientation. Um, or so it seems to me, at least in Britain, it would be. I think you're. I think you're. You're. You're right. Although I would argue that from a diplomatic point of view, um, there are four issues here to be resolved, um, and the question of the U.S.-Russian proxy war, which is one of them, um, is perhaps the easiest to solve. The most difficult one is the war between Ukrainians. Uh, because people forget that this began as a civil war between Ukrainians who insisted on uh, that Russian-speaking Ukrainians speak only Ukrainian for official purposes and educate their children in Ukrainian. Um, and this fissure between uh, Ukrainian tourists and Russian-speaking Ukrainians was in evidence um, right after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the efforts of the Crimea to declare independence uh, from Ukraine and uh, to become a, uh, a, a constituency of the Russian Federation. And it certainly was in evidence in 2014 with the reaction to the uh, coup in, in Kiev. Um, so this is a fundamental problem. It was, however, addressed uh, quite skillfully on a theoretical level at Minsk in the two agreements. But it's very significant that Russia accepted that despite its concern for its fellow Russian speakers in Ukraine, uh, a federal structure in Ukraine that would give them, let's say, the rights of the Quebecois in Canada, uh, French-speaking Canadians, um, uh, or uh, Swiss Canton, or uh, Walloons versus uh, 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 others in Belgium, uh, you know, this that this would be acceptable. Um, and it was a separate issue from the question of what, of where Ukraine fit in European security architecture. But this, pro this issue of how to compose differences among Ukrainians has become ever more complicated. Um, people, the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine have been subjected to uh, almost a decade of bombardment and um, uh, the, the level of blood that's been sh shed on both sides now uh, has embittered things to such a level that we hear people in Kyiv saying that when and if, when, they never say if, they liberate the Donbass, etc., 
They planned to hold trials to, for treason of anyone who collaborated with the Russians. Um, and they, um, they insist that uh, they will impose a Ukrainian language-only policy. Well, you couldn't find a more effective way of preventing any kind of deal than that. What's in it for the Russian-speaking Ukrainians to agree to be tried for treason or, or to uh, give up the uh, language rights that they uh, first uh, asserted in their secession? So that's one thing. There are four wars. That's the first. The second is one between the Russian state and, um, I'm sorry about that, Russian state and the Ukrainian state. Um, and um, uh, there we have, uh, you know, an unwillingness to talk on both sides. Um, but Mr. Zelensky says essentially that there must be regime change in Moscow before he will negotiate with Russia. Uh, which is, again, uh, an instance of a complete uh, failure uh, to lay the basis for any sort of negotiation. The third war is that the proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. And we could call that off. Um, that, you know, I, we, I'm speaking of the United States, we could call that off. Although you're quite right, the level of war propaganda and indoctrination that we've all suffered the degree of passion that has become invested in this issue are such that it would be require extraordinary leadership on the part of our president and uh, uh, senior members of our legislature, and I don't see it. Uh, so I'm sorry to say I don't see it in the UK either. Um, the, um, and the final war, of course, is uh, the one between uh, Europeans about how to organize a stable peace in Europe. Um, this is NATO versus Russia, I suppose. Um, NATO now including Finland um, uh, and uh, potentially including Sweden as well. Uh, so that in, instead of uniting Europe in a cooperative security arrangement as the partnership for peace envisaged, Europe is being united in a collective security organization directed at Russia. And just as we see elsewhere, the greater the effort to rely on military deterrence, the greater the response in military terms from those who are being deterred. And so we're in an arms race. We're in, a, in, a, in a, an escalation cycle uh, that has to be broken. And this all comes back, um, uh, Mr. Mercurius, if I may call you Alex, uh, it all comes back to... Please. To... Um, uh, the question you raised: uh, What is the outcome of the of the oft-rumored, never fully evident offensives by the two sides going to be? Uh, the Russians are running a meat grinder along the Ukrainian uh, frontier. Ukrainians are now beginning to raid over the Dnieper, apparently, um, probably probing for weak points for the so-called offensive. They assert they will they will launch. Uh, I, I have to say, in all my experience of wars, and as an American, I've been involved in many wars, um, the, I, I don't ever recall um, an instance where offensives were trumpeted um, for as much, for as long a time as this. That didn't happen. There's a Chinese expression, you know, loud, 
loud noise was heard on the stairs, but nobody came down. Um, and, and that seems to apply here. This might be the yeah that in, in this instance as this is also a proxy war the the need to advertise for a great offensive is necessary to well to get the equipment you need for the offensive so i guess it's all yeah tied in together uh, i also like the way you you structure this into four different wars because it also appears that uh, well what makes this even more complicated is a lot of these wars are uh, well they're connected among the different layers so for example um, you know many people don't re remember that uh, back in 1994 in the ja in January uh, Hillary Clinton uh, sorry Bill Clinton uh, he you know he, he made a speech recognizing if we decide to expand NATO this may redivide Europe between east and west and this would have conflicts I mean this wasn't very uh, controversial uh, at, at the time as, as a statement I mean this is what William Perry uh, Jack Matlock, George Kennan, they all cautioned that, uh, you know, Russia would again strengthen and uh, this would cancel the post-Cold War peace. Uh, but what I thought was interesting is uh, um, that NATO unity, I think, to some extent uh, required some strategic ambiguity because uh, the Western Europeans weren't comfortable to have a NATO uh, aimed against Russia. So, you know, for, for them, we focused on uh, reassurance, so uh, that that it is no, this is not a tool against Russia. While the Eastern Europeans, they wanted security guarantees against Russia. So there, the message was uh, the opposite. Yes, this uh, is uh, insurance guarantee against Russia. So I, I think that's why um, once NATO is forced to abandon this ambiguity, it uh, unavoidably will cause some divisions within. We see that now with Poland wanting a stronger role for. Uh, for um, for for NATO uh, within U Ukraine, but I'm also thinking what what you discussed with this uh, proxy war because uh, obviously the nationalists in Ukraine they have a, a a lot of power and I think we saw it through the after the Minsk peace agreement they were very clear they would never accept this and I think that's also uh, the NATO countries we obviously uh, leaned more towards the nationalists there. And also after Zelensky got elected with 73% uh, of the vote running on a huge uh, peace platform. So he got this huge peace mandate. But then again, nationalists came out, uh, warned him against uh, pursuing this. And uh, and again, I think the conflict between uh, NATO or US and Russia that uh, yet again, we, we favored the nationalists uh, uh, vetoing this peace effectively. So um, I was, so, yeah, I was just wondering how you see this... Um, the extent to which this would then be conceptualized as a as a as a proxy war, because uh, uh, I remember when first Russia invaded, this was considered a, a controversial a pro-Russian or Putinist statement. But since I've seen people like Lindsey Graham arguing, yes, this is a great format we have. We supply the weapons, and Zelensky will fight to the last man. We have uh, Mitch McConnell argued we shouldn't get lost in idealism. You know, this is not about Ukrainians. This is about uh, destroying Russia. Uh, you heard the same from uh, General retired uh, General Kellogg saying, "You know, this is a good war. We're killing Russians without uh, we with Ukrainians." And I know, you know, the retired general in Germany as well, uh, Harold Kuyat, uh, has also argued the same that this was, uh, you know, that we kind of sabotaged all the possible peace agreements with Russia even after the invasion, so we could keep this going. So I was just wondering how how do you see this? Is this uh, uh, as as a proxy war? Will we? Well, what 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 would it take to come to uh, to to bring this uh, to an end? Uh, is it merely running out of weapons? Because I, 
Uh, I actually read an article today in Politico where they argue that uh, peace might break out in Ukraine because if we don't have any more weapons to send, uh, we may have to ask them to sit down and talk to Russia. Um, is that the only way we can end the uh, proxy war? <laughs> or? Well, is, that is a possibility um, because certainly this war, which uh, in its intensity of infantry and artillery exchanges resembles nothing so much as World War I, um, has demonstrated conclusively that uh, the West, the United States, Europe, uh, are not prepared for this kind of war. We've become used to fighting people who don't have air forces and uh, who uh, hide in caves and uh, have lice in their beards. And we don't, um, uh, we're not prepared to fight uh, a modern force, even one that has been, has shown itself to be as uh, flawed as the Russian forces have. Um, but I think uh, you, you raise a very important question implicitly before I get to the question of how the proxy war gets called, called off. I think there are divisions between Europeans and Americans on the purposes of this war. Um, they have been papered over by common passion against the obvious uh, Russian transgressions of international law and borders and uh, alleged atrocities, perhaps real atrocities, and in Ukraine. Um, uh, and and uh, but they're only papered over. Uh, in the end, um, uh, I think what Europeans probably want is something closer to the concert of Europe uh, than to a divided uh, continent. We don't know how the division will, if there is one. Um, ultimately, um, we'll, we'll, we don't know what it will look like. Will it look like the Korean demilitarized zone? Um, you know, a strip of land that separates forces. Will it look like the line of actual control in Kashmir? Uh, that's a possibility. Um, uh, will it? Uh, will it not? Will it consist of something like the uh, continuation of the Chinese Civil War? during the Cold War when on alternate days, artillery fired at the mainland from Jinmen, Kimoi, uh, or at Kimoi from the mainland. Uh, so there was a symbolic war continuing, which involved artillery fire, but very few people were, were injured. It was symbolic of a divide, uh, which hasn't gone away, by the way. Um, so we don't know. Um, how could this end on the proxy war level? It could end, frankly, with um, uh, with political developments in my own country. Um, th there's a fair part of the Republican Party uh, now that uh, does not believe that the United States should be the world policeman, uh, believes Europeans should be responsible for European defense, backed by us, perhaps. But um, there were moves at the end of the Trump administration uh, to remove U.S. forces from Europe entirely and adopt a offshore balancing uh, uh, approach. Um, there are demands, some of which are being met for defense budget increases in Europe. Those defense budget increases, let's say the German, the fact that Germany is now rearming in a sense, um, reflects uh, hedging as well as other factors. Uh, you know, are the Americans really reliable? You know, we, you know, what are, why do we have to secede all authority 
uh, to Washington. Uh, so there is a possibility of the political plug being pulled uh, by uh, an erratic American political system. That's one thing. And then I agree, uh, the, the, the lack of weaponry, as well as the growing lack of manpower in Ukraine, um, you know, is putting quite a bit of pressure on uh, for to find some way to, to bring this to an end. Uh, I think there are 9 million Ukrainians who have fled Ukraine and gone elsewhere, Europe and Latin America and the United States. Uh, there even is a very large number who are displaced. Um, there are many, just as many draft dodgers from Ukraine as there are from Russia uh, going abroad. And um, uh, so each one of these wars, the war between Ukrainians, the war proxy war, the war between Europeans over security architecture uh, is um, is wobbly at the moment. I think. I was just going to ask Ambassador. I was going to make basically two quick points, and then maybe a, a further question. The first is this, which is that it seemed to me from your introduction about the discussions you gave about the structures, the security structures that were being created in the 1990s, that the security architecture that was envisaged, not just by yourself, but I must assume by the administration you served at the time for sure. Europe, was profoundly different from the one we eventually ended up with. Right. And I have to say, I, I, I wonder how it came about I mean, you've, you've made some suggestions, you know, electoral considerations, triumphalism on the some some people. But I do still ask myself how it changed so completely, how the ideas that were being put out, put together then were sort of evolved into something so different and so radically different from what was understood in the 1990s as being necessary to sustain the peace, and by the way, which I think, if they'd been followed through, would have sustained the peace. I mean, I remember that time very well. That's the first thing. And the, the second point is that this different security architecture that we have with this, not just ever-expanding NATO, but with a NATO which has become very heavily informed, if I have to say it, by neocon rhetoric. I don't want to you know, specifically talk about some particular individuals, but you can see the kind of language that's used all the time. Uh, I can't help but think that you were talking about the internal conflict in Ukraine. When you have that kind of rhetoric, when you have those kind of policies, what it is doing, at least so it seems to me, is inflaming those internal problems in Ukraine, those who want to pursue maximalist objectives in Ukraine have no disincentive from doing so. The same applies to some politicians, by the way, in Eastern Europe, in the Baltic states, increasingly, and I feel dangerously, in Poland, they, they feel that they can now pursue the most extreme positions because they sense that whatever they do, however they go about doing it, they will have the West behind them. How do you educate people to understand 
how dangerous this is. And how did it come about, first of all? I mean, this is maybe a too big a question, maybe not an appropriate or proper question. But what happened within the United States that caused people to change their views about this so completely? Was it some shift within the State Department, some change in the Defense Department, all of these things? And just to quickly finish and say, this idea of ending the war when we run out of weapons. I've never been a military person. I, I, you know, I, I, all I can say is, from my, my point of view, I would not want to be in a position where my country, if I wasn't, had responsibility for it, was obliged to end a proxy war or any kind of war for a reason like that. Those are very complex questions there. I would say three questions there. The first on what happened, um, I think one should not underestimate the change in Mr. Clinton, President Clinton from 1994, uh, which was, by the way, the year in which Boris Yeltsin first warned against NATO enlargement and its consequences, and 1996, when there was a midterm election, when there was an election in the United States for president, uh, and he had to appeal to the uh, numerous Eastern European uh, and other uh, voters uh, uh, in, in, our, in our country. But there's a bigger issue here that is never mentioned. And that is, uh, if you recall that period after the end of the Cold War, um, Soviet Union uh, dissolving and first the empire going in 1989 and then 1991, the Soviet Union itself dissolving. Um, there was this phrase uh, uh, replying to NATO, out of area or out of business. And along came Afghanistan, uh, which was a NATO operation. Now, this is a very peculiar thing because um, this is a response, of course, to the 9-11 terrorist attacks which are the first time that Article 5 of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty, was ever invoked. Um, but NATO is a was conceived not as an expeditionary force uh, to go into Southwest Asia, uh, but as a defense of Europe against um, the hordes to the east. Uh, and by the way, um, I can tell you my own doubts. Uh, which were never very great, I have to say, uh, during the Cold War about the seriousness of the threat from the Red Army were entirely dispelled when I talked to the Czechs, Slovaks, Poles, and others, uh, Hungarians, um, uh, about uh, the Partnership for Peace and what it was. Uh, I had a meeting in Garmisch, and after the meeting, the uh, Czech, uh, he was the head of the armed forces, uh, um, asked me if I'd like to go for a walk in the town. And we went walking in the town, and he said, well, this is Hilda's dress shop, and her husband Hans over there has his butcher shop. And so on. I said, well, how do you know? I mean, you come here often, but how do you know all this? He said, never been here in my life, but I was trained to occupy the place. Um, and I uh, found the Hungarians for perfect Italian for the same reason. Um, uh, so um, anyway, um, there was a reality there. And that reality changed in 1991. 
but our mentality did not. Um, and NATO did, in due course, become an expeditionary offensive force rather than simply a defensive alliance. We saw that uh, in Afghanistan. We saw it with the NATO members joining the coalition of the billing in Iraq. We saw it with the intervention in Libya, which was an a la carte NATO operation. Uh, we saw it with the detachment of, of uh, Kosovo from Serbia, uh, which set the precedent for the Crimean uh, uh, transfer to Russia. Um, so what happened was a lot of change. One thing didn't change. Uh, my country has two great oceans on either side of it. Mm. And as Bismarck react, uh, remarked, we are very fortunate because uh, to our north, we have the mild-mannered, excruciatingly polite Canadians. And to the south, we have wonderfully um, uh, uh, rambunctious and joyous Mexicans uh, whom we beat in a war and who don't have any intention of attacking us. And our neighbors to the east and west are fish. Now, if you are um, if you are a German, a friend of anyone in the great plain that extends from the Pyrenees to Kamchatka, uh, you have a very different circumstance. We never learned that if you shoot artillery over the border, somebody shoots back. Um, and therefore, you should make war the last resort. Uh, for, our, for most Americans, war is a video game. It happens far away on some screen. Uh, very few people get hurt on our side. Lots of people die on the other side. And uh, what's wrong with that? Anyway, uh, so I think there were illusions, delusions. Um, there were uh, residual animosities that carried over. Uh, there was a lack of understanding of the way the world was changing. Uh, to come to grips with the transformation of the Soviet Union with its messianic ideology and and international uh, communist support versus uh, Russian Federation, uh, which differs only from Ukraine in that Putin has brought the oligarchs to heel, whereas in Ukraine there's some question about whether the oligarchs are not still pulling the strings from Mr. Zelensky. Uh, so those are my ideas about why this happened, but if I'm, I'm not um, um, yeah, gifted with total understanding of anything. and. Um, and I think you're right. This is a mystery. Um, so, um, I thought your com I thought your comment on this uh, out uh, NATO going out of area or out of business is uh, is, is quite important because during the Cold War, when NATO was uh, well a status quo power for uh, defensive alliance, uh, solidarity made countries feel safe or secure uh, that we would you know stand together in defense. But I think after the Cold War where NATO become more revisionist by not just expanding, but also uh, abandoning this uh, status as a defensive alliance by going against Yugoslavia, uh, Libya, uh, Afghanistan. I think uh, this this solidarity or it it, it comes uh, with some danger because what I feel now is a lot of these small European countries, my own, uh, Norway included, there's a sense of impunity that... Uh, we can do anything we want these days. Uh, I mean, we're a small country, us five million, and this very, very aggressive rhetoric as well as policies now towards Russia. And uh, the assumption is that uh, 
you know, they, they, they can't really do anything because they won't dare because an, uh, NATO is here. But I think what we often miss is that this creates a, a dilemma for the Russians because on one hand, yes, they don't want to have a shooting war with NATO. On the other hand, if countries... <laughs> You know, very openly say, oh, we have to send as many, 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 much weapons as possible. The only way this war can end is if as many Russians die as possible. Like this is a, a very crazy rhetoric. And but, but again, with, it's with impunity. So I think at some point, uh, it's also a risk if Russia doesn't impose any costs uh, if if it allows uh, countries, if you will, to attack with this impunity. So they're kind of faced with a dilemma now. Do we? Do we give a fire a warning shot or do we avoid uh, because both comes with certain risk, I think. You're discussing the issue of co-belligerency and we are definitely co-belligerents. Um, you know, you don't have to talk about proxy war under international law and practice that has consequences. And you're absolutely right. The Russians face a dilemma on this. Uh, but I know I, I, I began by noting uh, the escalation of Ukrainian aims, trying people for treason and so forth. Um, I, I have to say, uh, although Mr. Stoltenberg does not represent Norway, um, he just went, made his maiden voyage to Kiev and proclaimed that everybody agreed Ukraine was going to come into NATO. Well, that is, of course, the very passus belli that uh, led the uh, Russians to do the foolish thing they did. Uh, so. Um, uh, it does seem to me that we have a contrary trend. Um, I, 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 I myself feel that uh, the, uh, the depletion of weaponry, the war fatigue, the, uh, the, the growing evidence that sanctions are ineffective, the consequences that flow from uh, the division, division of the world that, that follows from our lumping China and Russia together, um, and uh, the uh, reaction from what's sometimes called the Global South, what uh, my friend uh, Sergei Karaganov in Moscow calls the Global Majority, which I think is correct. Um, he's not correct about many things, but I think he's correct about that. Um, that these things uh, are all putting pressure on us to find a way to end the war. Mm. But at the same time, we're, under, we're seeing an escalation in war aims. Um, there never were clear war aims. So it's fine to move the goalposts, um, and um, we, we're seeing that. Um, so that is not promising. Uh, and if I were Ukrainian, I would be very distressed uh, because everything depends on my willingness to die uh, for a cause that's probably not going to be realized. Well, um, I. I know. Yeah, you switched it you know, to to Asia, and I thought, uh, yeah, because well, we should uh, try to tie some of this together as well, because you're not just an expert on uh, on European security. You obviously, have your background from uh, with China as well, from your days with Nixon and thereafter. Uh, I was just wondering that yes, we now see the U.S. and China appearing to move closer to military conflict. Uh, well, the, Beijing's perspective, at least, would be that the reason for this, in, in their in their view, is that the U.S. Is uh, gradually undermining this, you know, four decades long one China principle, which uh, which was the foundation for uh, relations, but also uh, security in East Asia. Um, 
in which the U.S. now is seen to be backing away from this idea that there's only one China and Taiwan's a part of it. So I was just wondering, do you, do you agree with this uh, perspective from Beijing that the United States is supporting Taiwanese secession, or, or do you see other elements uh, contributing to this uh, conflict between the Americans and the Chinese? Um, well, I think the primary, the, the framework that I helped work out uh, as a junior diplomat and later as a more senior one with the Chinese uh, to manage the fact that the Chinese Civil War had not ended. Uh, it was suspended by American military intervention in 1950 for very good reasons. We didn't want the Korean War to expand beyond Korea. So we put the Seventh Fleet in the Taiwan Strait to stop uh, the forces from the mainland attacking Taiwan and Chiang Kai-shek's residual forces in Taiwan from counterattacking the mainland. So um, that froze the, the Civil War, suspended it, it didn't end it. Um, and between 1971, when Kissinger made his secret visit to Beijing, 72, when Nixon went, 79, when we, at the end of 78, when we normalized relations with uh, Beijing, and uh, 82, when we reached an agreement on how to manage arms sales to Taiwan, uh, we worked out a framework that persuaded the Chinese, uh, this is not an urgent problem. Yes, it is your civil war. Yes, we will accept a peaceful settlement of this civil war. Inevitably, that means some kind of reunification. Um, how what sort of reunification takes place is up to you to work out with your fellow Chinese, and we won't interfere. Well, all of those things are gone. The the entire framework has collapsed. Uh, we agreed no official relations with Taipei, but we now treat it very much as though we had diplomatic relations with it. There's a building, two hundred thirty million dollar building in Taipei, with a, a a marine guard in it um, that is indistinguishable from an embassy. So we've broken that part of the agreement. Um, we agreed not to uh, undertake to defend Taiwan, but merely to provide it with the weapons it needed to defend itself. Um, but we now we now have a president who, on four occasions, has asserted that we will defend Taiwan. Uh, we said we would not have any military troops or installations on the island, and we now have both. Uh, so we have created a tripwire. So from the Chinese point of view, yes, this is a betrayal of uh, understandings that were crucial to maintaining the peace. Why did that happen? It happened in large measure uh, uh, for two reasons. First, uh, uh, if you're Taipei, uh, the alternative capital of China, which for 23 years uh, we uh, insisted was the capital of all of China, including Mongolia, um, that uh, they're number two, and they tried harder. Uh, they're very good at diplomacy, public diplomacy, and otherwise, um, and more power to them. The second, um, under the uh, framework that we worked out uh, with Beijing, uh, Taiwan was able to drop martial law and to democratize. And it is now a robust democracy, and therefore it has uh, a great deal of ideological sympathy in the United States and elsewhere in the democratic world. Um, so um, it's when we normalized with Beijing, uh, Taiwan under Chiang Kai-shek was uh, an authoritarian, not to say totalitarian, quasi-totalitarian system. It's now democratic. 
uh, Beijing, which appeared to be moving toward greater liberalism, has retrogressed and uh, become more authoritarian. So the ideological element, which disappeared for a while, is back with a vengeance. Uh, are we going to get into a war? Uh, very likely, uh, because uh, when you weigh the possibility of war, you must weigh what I call the balance of fervor. Which side cares the most about the outcome? Now, if you were a North Vietnamese, it turned out you cared a lot more about the unity of your country than Americans did about keeping it disunited. Uh, and the same uh, equation operates in the Taiwan Strait. Um, to the extent we have, we have come to base our policy toward Taiwan entirely on military deterrence. That creates a security dilemma. Everything that we do is seen by Beijing as a threat. And they respond. How do they respond? Uh, they have a rapidly growing economy still, although people are slowing down. Um, their defense budget has kept pace with the GDP, which has brought them to the point where they, uh, in nominal dollar terms, are spending a huge amount of money, about a third of what we're spending. Um, in purchasing power parity terms, it's probably equal. Uh, and there's a lot of wishful thinking and, uh, again, going back to the shortage of weaponry and the military-industrial complex's inability to supply the war in Ukraine, uh, many Americans imagine that we could reenact World War II, where we were in a depression and we were able to surge production of military equipment on a colossal scale, building a 6,000-ship navy, um, for example, um, turning out one tank every hour. Um, this is not going to happen. Uh, China's industrial production now equals that of the United States, Europe, and Japan combined. When people talk about GDP comparisons, uh, what they're talking about uh, inadvertently is uh, what they're saying is, well, the United States has many more lawyers, tax accountants, insurance bureaucrats, uh, and academicians than the Chinese. Um, they don't talk about, you know, how many ships you build, um, how many, how many, um, how much steel do you produce? Um, how much concrete or do you lay down? Um, what is your capability for surge? Chinese defense spending is about one and a half percent of GDP. Our defense budget is well over three percent, but our defense budget is only sixty percent of the total because we put other money in things like the Department of Energy for nuclear weapons and the Veterans Affairs Department to pay for past wars and um, dual-use functions like the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and the intelligence community. Uh, and we add all that up, it's $1.5 trillion a year, which is colossal, absolutely colossal. Um, but the level of spending does not determine the level of fighting ability, as we should have learned in Afghanistan, uh, in uh, Iraq, uh, and we are learning in Ukraine. I mean, after all, uh, Europe and America together uh, dwarf Russia in military terms, and yet the Russians are able to give a good account of themselves. 
than I recall as an American in World War II, Japan had a GDP that was 10% of that of the United States. And it gave us a good run for, for the money for, for four years. Uh, so um, there are many factors here. Um, they all point, unfortunately, in the direction of some sort of terrible train wreck. Uh, and um, uh, what we see at the moment is the Chinese having drawn a lesson from Ukraine, which is most unfortunate. Namely, if you have an overwhelming nuclear deterrent, you can fight a conventional war with another nuclear power. And this is why you're seeing the plus up of the ICBM force out in the Gobi Desert. Um, they are preparing the nuclear cover for a possible conventional war over Taiwan, which they don't want. They have, they have made every effort to put forward reasonable negotiating positions. Uh, but as, uh, as Alex said earlier, um, if, you, uh, if the United States is prepared to guarantee that whatever happens, you're safe, then you have no incentive to be cautious. And you certainly have no incentive to negotiate, just as Europeans had no incentive to build up defense budgets uh, or insist on a different path to European security architecture. Why bother? Everything was just fine. Mm -hmm. um, well, this is not a good formula. Uh, the final point I would make is that the two issues, uh, that is the Taiwan issue and the Ukraine issue, have something in common. And they're both about spheres of influence. Uh, Taiwan is in the American sphere. We have determined we want to keep it that way, evidently. Um, Ukraine was not in the American sphere of influence called NATO. We determined that we wanted to include it. So a lot, one of the many reversals of black and white that one hears in the analysis of the Ukraine issue is this is about Russia trying to oppose a sphere of influence on Ukraine. No, it was Russia trying to deny uh, the other side of the sphere of influence in Ukraine, which would allow the basing of weapons systems on Russia's doorstep. So uh, the Chinese want to get rid of the American sphere of influence. Why? Two revolutions in China in the 20th century were about was this. Ending foreign spheres of influence on Chinese soil. Ending the humiliation of China by foreign forces. Taiwan brings all of that out on a daily basis as an issue, and it adds the Japanese factor. Um, Chinese believe 35 million Chinese died at the hands of the Japanese during their 14-year rampage through, through China. Others say, well, no, it was only 25 million. Mm -hmm. um, but everybody in North and Central China lost somebody. So um, uh, old nostalgic irrational memories count, not just in Europe, but in Asia as well. I have to say, listening to what you've just been saying, Ambassador, that when it comes to relations with China, there is a rather troubling sense of deja vu. It's, it's the same kind of mistakes and misconceptions in policy that have led to a great extent, I'm not saying that the other side is you know, completely innocent and haven't, hasn't made its own mistakes, but we, and you know, in Britain, we are we are there too, not perhaps centrally, but we are 
we have been making the same mistakes with the Chinese as we've been saying making with the Russians, except that the stakes, if possible, are even higher when people talk about an armed clash between the United States and China, and they talk about it as something that you know might actually happen and happen soon. I, I have to say, I find that so extraordinary that it, it just astonishes me that people are able to talk about it as calmly as they are. I mean, the idea of a war between China and the United States, I would have thought would be a horrifying thing that the priority on both sides would be to try and find some way to avoid it, even if that does require compromises and looking back to solutions. And, you know, you were involved, as it turns out, in both the setting up of the original relationship with China, which worked very well for a very long time. You were involved in the setting up of the original relationships in Europe, which I think could have succeeded in keeping peace there in Europe. Why don't people look back at those things and say to themselves, surely, going back to that, accepting, you know, that Taiwan, well, we're not going to sort it out. We, we, we Let's not say that it's, you know, going to be an independent country. It's too dangerous to do that. Let's accept that, that the Chinese have concerns. Why not go back to that kind of thinking? instead of risking things in this extraordinary way by talking oneself into a war with China. Anyway, I, I, I've spoken perhaps a bit. Well, your your, your, your uh, Mr. Cleverly is about to give a clever speech, I understand, or maybe he already did, uh, about why post-Brexit Britain uh, does have to reposition itself with regard to China and can't blindly follow the United States, although that is not probably the way he phrased it. Um, so, uh, I, as an American, I'm acutely aware uh, you know, of the fact that you cannot achieve self-determination uh, without the agreement of the mother country. Uh, we uh, gave Britain the bird back in 1776, and there were five years of very vicious warfare, at the end of which nobody remembers, but one-third of the white population of what is now the United States, fled. Um, they went to back to Britain, they went to the Bahamas, the West Indies, they went to Australia, they went to New Zealand. Anyway, um, and then it took two years at the negotiating table in Versailles to get the grudging agreement of uh, His Majesty's government to uh, the uppity independence of, 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 of Americans. Um, and um, so when Taiwan says, well, we're entitled to self-determination, I say, sure, as long as you can get Beijing's agreement. Um, and you're certainly not going to get Beijing's agreement by putting an American garrison in your midst. Um, so but what you, the point you've made, I would, perhaps as a former diplomat, I would uh, entirely predictably answer, uh, what, is, what, is, what these things have in common is the total repudiation of diplomacy. Uh, Putin says we have a problem we need to reach an agreement about um, how to have a peaceful, stable Europe. Uh, Russia's got one foot in Europe and one out. Um, now it's got two feet out, I guess. Um, we need to deal with this. And we say, we're not going to talk to you about that. We'll talk to you about tomahawk launchers, maybe. 
if you're good. Um, and we say to the Chinese, we can't, we are not on speaking terms with the Chinese. Our Secretary of State can't go to China. Uh, Mr. Xi Jinping will not answer the phone from Mr. Biden. Um, and uh, the former Chinese ambassador, a very professional man, uh, just at a conference in Shanghai said, why should we have a meeting? What's the point of a meeting where one side habitually lies? Why should we take that seriously? Because we're claiming we still have a one-China policy when demonstrably we don't. Um, so um, lip service will only carry you so far. Um, I think it is true, by the way, Nixon, who uh, was a very strange man, I knew him close up, um, um, but a very gifted advocate and, uh, and negotiator, uh, once said that, uh, you know, it's not true that you, it's always better to talk than not to talk. It depends on whether you know what to say. I don't think we know what to say on any of these issues, frankly. Um, so Mr. Stoltenberg does seem to me to represent the broad issue. Um, and uh, and I must say, Mr. Medvedev in, in uh, Moscow is, um, you know, equally provocative or more so. Uh, so uh, this is an impasse with no obvious immediate solution except the one that you, uh, Alex, raised at the beginning, which is, how do these offensives work out if there are real offensives? It's interesting how uh, yeah, uh, Dmitry Medvedev has become quite hawkish. He does actually remind me a bit about Jan Stoltenberg at the moment. Uh, but it wasn't always uh, uh, like this, though, because, uh, again, I, I think a key reason why we don't have anything to say to the Chinese is, uh, and we don't have any solutions with the Russians, is because we are this... Uh, difficult transition because we're moving now again from global primacy into a multipolar system and we're not quite sure how to uh, yeah well, what language to even use uh, but uh, speaking of uh, uh, president medvedev in in 2008 yeah, as the president of russia he, he proposed this new principle he said that uh, in the new era we have to replace spheres of influence uh, with uh, spheres of interest now and, and I thought this was interesting because often when you talk about countries like Ukraine, it's all, all, always in this zero-sum game that is either they belong to the Western sphere of influence or the Russian sphere of influence. But what the, he argued was that the sphere of interest concept would be very different. It simply meant if, um, well, if sphere of influence is conceptualized as exclusive influence and dominance, sphere of, inf sphere of interest would merely mean that what happens along your border is of vital interest to you. So, in other words, uh, you know, Western powers can go as much as they want to Ukraine, do whatever deals they want. However, one when they're operating on the Russian border, they have to take their interest into consideration. So I thought this was quite a kind of interesting concept because this looks like the arrangement for Mexico as well. Because Mexico, under no you know, no stretch of the imagination is under a sphere of influence. They have freedom to do mostly what they want. However, they do not have the freedom to join hostile anti-American military alliances because when you operate on the American border, you respect their uh, security. So I thought the sphere of influence concept was, uh, uh, sorry, sphere of interest concept was uh, quite uh, conducive or helpful to conceptualize what a, a multipolar world order might be. Uh, furthermore, I think that uh, well, uh, global primacy can be based on uh, on this uh, alliance systems. Uh, it's very difficult to have stability uh, with alliance systems in the multipolar world because, and, and also as we discussed, world order after 
the, the main experience has been you need the inclusive security architecture. So the lesson after the Napoleonic Wars, obviously establishing the concert of Europe, was you bring in the defeated party, uh, France, and we, even we after failed. World War II. We failed in, after World War One, yeah. with terrible consequences. Yeah, terrible. That was... Uh, after World War One, trying to keep the peace in Europe by having perpetual, uh, perpetually weakened uh, Germany, obviously also a bad idea. And that lesson could be fixed after World War Two by bringing in the Germans, despite the atrocities they had committed on the continent. But uh, but then we come after the Cold War, and uh, again, uh, from the Russian perspective, there were, and, and people like Jack Matlock arguing that Russia wasn't even defeated; it was a you know a, a diplomatic oh, settlement in '89, and still. Uh, historical lesson there. Russia Sorry. defaulted on the game. It de it defaulted. It decided to abandon the pursuit for global hegemony, hmm. um, and uh, it was not defeated. It gave up. That's different. And um, I think you're you're you're. I think Medvedev uh, may very well be depicting accurately predict, uh, depicting a future world. But at the moment, we're, we're in the grips of you're either with us or against us. Mm. Uh, so we look at countries like India and China, uh, which um, have assiduously avoided taking sides. Um, you know, we say, well, you're not with us, therefore you must be with the Russians. But I don't think that's the case. You know, the Chinese statement of principles, not a plan, peace plan, but a statement of principles uh, included prominently up front uh, respect for sovereignty. That was a that was a dig at Mr. Putin, and and you talk to Chinese, they will tell you that. Um, um, uh, it it is at some point those principles may or may not be uh, uh, the basis for some sort of peace plan. At the moment, it's impossible for all the reasons we've been discussing. And nobody's ready for peace. Uh, but I want to say something about spheres of influence and spheres of interest. Um, spheres of interest are incompatible with your with us or against us. Uh, they assume that there's not one global order. There are many global orders and regional orders. And some of them are economic, some are technological, some are political, some are military, mm -hmm. some are cultural. Uh, so um, they can coexist in a single country. Uh, and this actually... Interestingly, this is very un, this is a very un-European concept uh, because spheres of influence have been basic to European uh, the European explosion into the world, the British Empire and the French Empire and so on and so forth, and the German related German effort to create an empire and the, the Japanese effort. This, these are all very deeply embedded in Western culture. But if you look at the culture of India, pre-British. Uh, pre-British conquest, uh, or you look at the history of China, um, this is not how they operate. And uh, so um, they operated in, a, in exactly the way that Medvedev predicts, which is, uh, well, I might be the dominant economic force in Mexico, but Mexico was politically aligned not with me, but with someone else. So, uh, Mexico, of course, as you said, can't uh, have a military alliance against the United States or a foreign military presence directed against the United States. And you don't have to look for the Cuban Missile Crisis to see the example of that. Um, most people forget that in, during our civil war, uh, the French 
installed Maximilian of Austria as the emperor of Mexico. Um, the only legacy of that is mariachi music, mariachi being the Mexican-Spanish pronunciation of mariage or marriage. Uh, and uh, uh, when our civil war was over, the first thing we did was mass 40,000 troops on the Mexican border and say to the French, be gone or else. And the French, not being stupid, left. Uh, poor Maximilian, two years later, died at the, uh, before a firing squad organized by Benito Juarez, the great Mexican liberal. Anyway, um, I think the world is indeed uh, fragmenting uh, in interesting ways. And multipolarity is not just multipolarity of political alignments. Uh, it's multipolarity of economic, technological, cultural, military alignments, and uh, a lot of regional orders that are sub-global, uh, in part because the United States, ironically, has smashed some of the global institutions, um, the WTO, for example. Um, and this leaves people to work out dispute settlement uh, mechanisms and trade deals, not on a global, but on a regional basis. And so we're seeing a fragmentation. And interestingly, uh, I think uh, that this empowers middle-ranking powers in a way that they have not been empowered uh, for perhaps a century. A um, country like Saudi Arabia, um, uh, which was very subservient to the United States, um, uh, now is entirely independent. It will take its own actions based on its own judgments of its interests, whether it's in cooperating with Russia on OPEC plus uh, and oil prices, or whether it's um, accepting Chinese mediation of uh, for some sort of rapprochement with Iran, or whether it is pulling the plug on the uh, effort to depose uh, uh, President Assad in, in Syria. Uh, and so uh, we're seeing this. We saw it with Turkey, which is still a NATO ally nominally, but behaves as though it's in an entente, not an alliance. Uh, that is to say, as though it's in a limited partnership for limited purposes, uh, and across the board commitment to mutual defense. Uh, and I think you know, we're seeing it with rearmament of Japan and Germany, um, uh, both of which are hedging. Um, they are developing greater mm -hmm. capabilities to support, in the case of Germany, NATO, in the case of Japan, the U.S.-Japan alliance. But at the same time, they're great, developing greater capacity to act independently of, of these mm -hmm. alliances. So this is a world in evolution, and I don't think it's understood. Uh, listening to all that, and I, I, mean, I agree that it is a world of, in evolution, but... Again, one does wonder whether some of the responses that have been made to all of this aren't making that evolution take place in a more disordered and chaotic way than it might necessarily need to be. And we have sanctions now, which are causing major instability in the economic system. We have attempts to impose price caps on oil products. We're talking about Russian oil, but no reason why you can't do it with other countries' oils as well. We see the use of the dollar system 
in all sorts of ways that um, are intended to use the dollar to control or to put pressure on countries. And inevitably, people are responding, countries are responding, and they're responding in all sorts of ways. And um, Glenn was talking about U.S. primacy ending. I, I really do wonder whether this question of U.S. primacy isn't uh, it always makes me uncomfortable when people talk about primacy because the evolution of the system, in my opinion, does not challenge the core interests of the United States. That other countries prosper, that they succeed, that they become, you know, self-supporting is not a failure of America or a symptom of American decline. It's just a normal process of development and change. But attempting to use all of these tools in order to prevent that development, it seems to me, is potentially creating challenges to American primacy in ways that, as I said, could actually be dangerous and potentially chaotic and which can make things far more unstable than they need to be. Well, I entirely agree. Um, I, I think... Um, many of the actions we've taken uh, are reflexive and not thoughtful, and uh, they are counterproductive. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, well, there are many examples, but um, uh, I think the resort to coercion, whether it's by sanctions or military use of force rather than diplomacy, is inherently off-putting uh, for other countries. And it does breed a reaction. Um, this was exemplified at Anchorage in the approach to the Chinese that the new Biden administration took. But we went in and we said, you are moral reprobates. We despise you. If we can hold you back, we will. If we can push you back, we will. But by the way, there are a few things we need to work together on. Would you do it with us? Um, this is the very opposite of diplomacy. Um, maximum pressure on Iran or North Korea or whatever. Um, uh, you know, uh, 70 years of, or 63 years, I guess, of uh, sanctions on Cuba. Um, you know, these things just don't, we don't appear to, to learn um, from the failure of these efforts, and indeed, worse than failure. You know, the most effective use of sanctions in history was our embargo on steel and oil exports to Japan in 1941, the summer. We got their attention, and they responded at Pearl Harbor. Uh, so, uh, uh, but I look at, for example, the technology issue. Um, China now has one-fourth or more of the world's STEM workforce, and the proportion is growing. And the Chinese are incredibly inventive now. We see it mostly in the financial and the military sectors. But they were the ones who came up with a carrier killer a terminally guided uh, ballistic missile to hit uh, ships at ocean and sea. Uh, their air-to-air -air missiles outrange ours. Their hypersonic missile missiles exist, ours don't. Um, they have rail guns on their ships, which we failed to be able to do. Um, and um, what I see, and I no longer visit China because I'm, I'm old and I don't like to travel, um, but um, what I see is uh, a technology race in which we are cutting ourselves off 
from the greatest pool of scientific and technological talent in the world. And we're also trying to cut them off from global markets and failing. Um, uh, we are dividing the world into different technological ecospheres. And this is not to our advantage. Uh, you know, Nokia and Ericsson are great, um, but they're not an answer to Huawei in terms of what Caragano calls the global majority. As or we are behaving in a self-destructive manner, um, and we're risking things that we shouldn't risk. And with regard to the war over China, war with China, I have to say this, it seems to me there's an element of racism here. Um, you know, um, wars in Asia are take place over there. They don't touch us. Um, and we can always limit the war. The model is Korea, Vietnam. The Chinese didn't. Of course, we forget the Chinese who had basically uh, nothing in the modern sense, but had just won the civil war on the mainland, uh, were able to hold us at bay, and more so in Korea. Um, in Vietnam, there were 300,000 Chinese troops in the north. Um, the, the, they were railway protection troops for the most part. But I've spoken to Chinese generals who were present with the Vietnamese in the, when the Marines landed in Da Nang in 1965 and observed it. And by the way, they like the Marines. They, they've modeled some of their forces after them. Um, so um, I think um, we, uh, uh, we, are, we are foregoing uh, uh, diplomacy at our peril. And the parallel really does exist with Ukraine, where we basically dispense with diplomacy, and we are paying the consequences, and so are the Russians. Um, so is the world. Uh, we're working up to the same thing with the Chinese. Um, and I, I should add, uh, uh, despite the Saudi rapprochement with Iran, which is partial, very much a work in progress, uh, we still have, uh, you know, constant threats from Israel to attack Iran. Um, and there, the Israeli strategy is to, um, light the fuse and then hope that the Americans blow up. And, and, you know, come in and do the job for them. Um, so, uh, and there's no dialogue at all with Iran. Uh, most awkward uh, proximity talks in Vienna, um, all gone now. Um, so, no diplomacy. Uh, and I have, in my country, is uh, an economic war with much of the world. Uh, we have sanctions on all sorts of people. The global war on terrorism, which is an absurdity, is now being conducted in 82 countries. Uh, we have piled up a national debt of $8 trillion in current and prospective costs for all of this. We borrow every penny of that. We now have a domestic political scene in which the Republican Party uh, is threatening to repudiate the national debt. Um, so tell me this is rational. Uh, it isn't. And, and um, it, it distresses me no end, because in the end, you know, I mean, I look at our technological war with China, and I'm concerned about what it, the damage it will do to us. I'm not worried about the Chinese. They'll take care of themselves. And unfortunately, they will now do it in partnership with Russia. I, I like what you said about this, uh, uh, not the well, age or the opportunities for medium-sized countries, because uh, 
Uh, I, when I used to work at a university in Moscow, uh, actually for the department of Sergei Karaganov, <laughs> so oh. common friend. Yeah. Anyways, uh, uh, the, I, I spoke to many, well, various ambassadors, including the Turkish ambassador to Russia, and they all kind of had the same thing that they always got this reaction from Western states that you know are they leaving the Western to join Russia, and, and they always try to explain, no, this is not the Cold War. Uh, we are, you know, the we have uh, uh, alternatives now. We want to uh, be an independent pole of power, which means we we will not be forced to choose between us or them anymore. And I think that's quite important because in the effort of reasserting unipolarity, I think uh, the U.S. risks creating an unfavorable multipolarity. That is, uh, for example, by pressuring uh, India to uh, stop trading with uh, Iran. Well, then Iran has to go to China instead. This doesn't seem good for uh, the United States. And we see the same with Russia. The United States pressuring the Europeans to cut ties with Russia. Well, Russia goes to China, becomes more dependent on China. So, um, you know, often we would get the impression that it would be more in the US interest even to support, for example, the Eurasian Economic Union, because that helps to uh, but that helps to put more of the central, a well, strengthen Russia's position in Central Asia, as opposed to having this whole reg region also drift to China. But there's there's this uh, impulse to to undermine all other centers of power, which means that uh, you end up with a very unfavorable uh, multipolar system. Which kind of takes me to the, to the last question, also I wanted to ask you, which is uh, medium-sized power, obviously Saudi Arabia, because we now see only you know, over the past month with some big. Yeah, really groundbreaking developments. First of all, yeah, this uh, peace now, the Chinese negotiating this peace between the Saudis and Iran, we see which the, apparently the US was blindsided. And also Saudi Arabia uh, restoring its relations with Syria, op reopening its embassy. And lastly, this new economic connectivity with China, uh, as uh, yeah, I think it was Alexander mentioned earlier, we were now selling oil in, uh, or, well, sending its, selling its energy in uh, non uh, dollar currencies. This is uh, the one, of course, but this is all, again, this is the key cornerstone of the petrodollar system. This is all quite uh, extraordinary development. Well, how, how do you see this fracture, if you will, between the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, impacting well, the wider world order? Well, if you declare that it's your intention to make a country and its leader a pariah, you should not be surprised if they don't welcome that and seek alternatives. Um, the, the Saudis, over the course, uh, and they're not alone, the other Gulf Arabs as well, the United Arab Emirates is now punching well above its weight uh, internationally in many directions. Um, uh, they watched with horror uh, the American protege, Hosni Mubarak, in Egypt be displaced to apparently lethal reaction in the United States, and they wondered, are we right to depend on a country for our protection that has that sort of reaction? They saw Iranian attacks and other actions on shipping in the Gulf of Hormuz, and there was no effective American reaction. Uh, there was an effort made to put together uh, a coalition uh, which uh, didn't succeed, although we did get the mighty Albanian Navy involved in it. Um, and um, I think um, uh, there's no, there's a sense of the United States as erratic, unreliable, um, and basically all military all the time and not prepared to deal with issues. You know, we, 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 we ran talks with Iran behind Saudi Arabia's back. 
um, uh, at a time when they were very concerned about uh, our policies. And so uh, they've gone off on their own, but they're not the only ones. And um, I would say uh, what's happened in the Middle East is a microcosm of what's happening everywhere. And that is uh, that countries are deciding they don't need external great power patrons. Uh, they can make their own decisions. They can work out their own arrangements for uh, the kinds of geometry, geopolitical geometry there is in their in their region. Uh, and just to buttress your point, Glenn, um, consider what what Lula has just done. Uh, you know, this is Brazil is discounted at your peril. It is an important country and a very large one. And uh, has a major role in all sorts of issues, whether they're climate change or, or whatever. And it is part of the BRICS, of course, the first letter in BRICS. The BRICS are working on a common currency, on a common trading system, uh, on a common um, uh, a trade dispute settlement system. And uh, they are open to membership from other medium-sized powers, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was founded by Russia and China, really, to keep Islamist terrorists and extremists at bay, uh, has now involved into much more. Uh, it has been, uh, it is beginning to amalgamate with the, uh, the East Asia, the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, uh, and it is uh, beginning to uh, Develop ties with the BRICS, overlap with the BRICS. Uh, and by the way, when you tell India not to trade with Iran, India gives you the, uh, an, a rude gesture that does not respond. Um, so, um, is anybody in charge? No, nobody is in charge. Is that frustrating for a country that for 150 years was the greatest economy and political force on the planet? Of course. Um, do we deal with that psychologically well? No, we don't. Um, there is an American self-regard at stake, rather like the concept of face in China. Face is the self-regard you derive from the regard of others. Uh, others respect me, therefore I'm respectable, therefore I respect myself. Uh, well, uh, all of the things that Alex or Alexander, I don't know which you prefer, uh, um, uh, listed uh, are uh, directly eroding that self-respect. Well, uh, on, I'm not sure if we should make that the, the, the final note, or Alexander, do you have any final comments before we wrap up? No, I, I don't have just to say, first of all, thank you very much for those insights. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the details of what people like Nixon were like, but that's obviously outside the scope of this program. <laughs> and uh, I mean, being being there, I mean, at, at those times, I, I wish people would go back and look back to that time. And I, I remember international relations, it's just on the cusp of my memory, in the late 60s, early 70s, 70s, we had there was a diplomacy in the United States in those days. It was very good. The United States did diplomacy at that time, and it did it as well or better than anyone. And of course, the United States was a very was the most indisputably the most powerful country in the world then. And look how 
it worked for it doing diplomacy at that time. Now, when in, by some metrics, the United States is less powerful and has to deal with more countries, it's decided that it doesn't need diplomacy anymore, or at least some people in the United States have decided that. And that is an extraordinary thing and such a huge mistake. And, well, just look back, look at what was achieved back in the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, thereafter. Look at people like, you know, Nixon, Kissinger, whatever you may think of their morals and their personalities. Look at George Shultz. Look at Cyrus Vance. Look at people like that. Well, uh, and see what they managed. Well, Why these, can't we do that? These were statesmen of stature. Yeah. Um, but perhaps they were somewhat lacking in morality on occasion. Um, but um, they got useful results. And diplomacy in those years, consistent for the United States, largely of alliance management, which we became very good at. Um, and um, uh, we actually had an alliance in NATO that was defensive, that respected Europeans, uh, that uh, was in dialogue constantly with Europeans, uh, and, uh, and which created uh, the software for uh, multinational interoperability on the battlefield, uh, which the Warsaw Pact never did because of the lack of respect that the Russians had for their satellite uh, auxiliaries. Um, alliance management does seem to be an art from the past, um, notwithstanding the unity we've achieved in the face of Russian provocation. Um, but perhaps if you go back to that age, and here I'm criticizing my own um, uh, diplomatic uh, colleagues, uh, perhaps what we were doing was less diplomacy than imperial administration. Um, and uh, the two are quite different. Um, I, I've studied both the Roman and the Anshan, the Han Dynasty Chinese systems of imperial administration, and they are very legalist. That is to say, they, they consist of the administration of punishments uh, more than they do of inducements, all sticks, no carrots. And perhaps we learned that lesson, and that was the wrong lesson to learn uh, for the new age of disorder, which we have entered. Well, that that's quite a thought, actually. That's a completely new thought to me. But if I may say so, Ambassador, you were there. I mean, you were there. You were there in in the seventies. Not an achievement. You just you know, just have to live at the right time, you know. And um, I will be happy to discuss the uh, strange character of <laughs> Mr. Nixon or Mr. Kissinger or Spigniew Brzezinski, all of whom I knew reasonably well. Um, uh, George Schultz, you're right, was a, an absolute uh, gem of a man, um, a man of principle, a clear-thinking person, a empathetic, um, a great contributor to many things, and um, I miss him. Um, we don't have his like uh, in evidence very much of anywhere at the moment. Um, so, on that sad thought, then perhaps we should... <laughs> I hope you will um, cut out the telephone calls and so on. Sorry about those. Um, um, it's, I'm a victim of uh, uh, 
I, I have a telephone system in my new residence in New Hampshire that evidently was part of some international conspiracy involving uh, smuggling or something because I get calls, uh, tax calls from Israel, from Poland, from you know South Africa, from whatever um, people imagining that whoever, whatever criminal had this uh, uh, number before still has it. Uh, so not much I can do about it. Oh. Ambassador, Ambassador, thank you very much for your generosity and your time. It was a great pleasure to meet you face to face, all of you, both of you. Mm -hmm. Bye bye. Well, thanks again, Ambassador. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Mm -hmm.